So we have been dedicating uh, the last number of weeks to the study of the book of Colossians, and this is our last Sunday there. We've really flown through this book. There's so much more that we haven't even touched. Um, And my purpose in that was not to brush over things as much as to get a general point of seeing a bit of what God has done that he wants us moving into, because this is a setup for what's going to start happening next Sunday. And uh, we're going to take this direction of what God wants us to move into uh, much deeper. And uh, as you see in your notes, you can see where we've gone so far. So as we come to the last part of this letter, there's a lot of very practical instructions about our relationships. Uh, Beginning in chapter 3, verse 18, through the beginning of chapter 4, you see a bunch of personal relationships talked about between wives and husbands and fathers and their children. And uh, because my children are here and I'm a father, I'm not preaching on that. Otherwise, I'd be guilty of all kinds of things. That's not really true, but I do want to move over these particular uh, things this week, not because they're not important, but because we will wrestle with those in the months to come. Instead, because it's Labor Day weekend and you came to church, congratulations, really, and thank you, because, you know, I mean, if there's ever a reason, oh no, it was Labor Day weekend. So thank you. And because you came, I thought, you know, let's do something a little bit different. I hope this will be a little of a reward for you, something insightful that you may not have done before. Because the last part of this letter is full of stuff that you just go, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, and you just read on. I'd like to read it to you, and you'll see how much you're missing because it's so meaningful. Beginning in verse 7, of chapter 4 of the letter to the Colossians. And uh, if you don't know where that is, there's a Bible in front of you and there's a, a slip of paper in your bulletin that also gives the page number. And so it says this, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's our dear brother. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. And I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you, and they will tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You received instructions about him, and if he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings, and these are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He sends his greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him, and he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And after this letter has been read to you, see that you also read the uh, read in the, see oops sorry see that it is also read in the church of Laodicea and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it, you complete the work you have received in the Lord. And I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, remember my chains, grace be with you. Isn't that meaningful? Because, of course, you know who Archippus is, and you know who uh, Aristarchus is, and you're personal friends with Onesimus. You know, we just kind of rush all over this stuff, and why in the world is it there? I believe that every single word written in here is directed of God and inspired of him for purposes that he wants to accomplish in our lives. All of them, every one of them. So what in the world does Tychicus have to do with me? 
Well, I thought I would just take an opportunity this week and talk about the next community, which really is reflected in these strange names that we cannot even pronounce. And I'm not sure I'm getting them right. I'm just saying them so. And you say it with confidence and everybody thinks you got it right. I, we're going to get to heaven and the guy's going to look at me and go, wow, did you ever butcher my name? You know? Who are these guys? We have five groups of people in a room. Now, literally, this is true. Paul is in Rome writing this letter in his first imprisonment. His first imprisonment was a form of house arrest. So it's his own house of some sort. He rented a house and he lived in it. And picture him writing this letter. And the first group that we see is Paul and Timothy. And they're sitting at a table very much not like this, I'm quite sure. But they're sitting at a table and they're writing this letter. We know that because if you go to the very first verse of the letter, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And interestingly, Timothy's not mentioned with the guys in the back. He's mentioned in the beginning with Paul. Together with Paul, he's written this letter. He is a part of the construction and the instruction of this particular writing. It's remarkable. He's the co-author. He's deeply involved in this. Now, Timothy, if you don't know, was a younger man than Paul. He receives two letters of his own in the New Testament, very personal ones. Paul, at the first of those letters, said to him, you are my true son in the faith. Why did he say that? Well, in uh, his first missionary journey, that is Paul's, he went through a city called Lystra. A number of people came to the Lord. There was a grandmother and a mother there of Jewish descent, and they had, uh, well, the mother, of course, had this son, Timothy. There was a Greek father, and this Timothy came to the Lord through faith that was built into him through his mother and grandmother. On a second journey, as Paul comes through, he's so commended as a young man, Paul takes him along as a disciple. He even circumcises him so that he would be acceptable to the Jews. It's a whole other issue we're going to wrestle with as we go through this next year. But this guy is pretty dedicated, following Paul along the way. Traveled all over the place with Paul, traveled for Paul. Uh, on forays of, of, of assignment to different places like Corinth. And uh, finally, we find him pastoring the church of Ephesus. We've referred to that several times as we've studied this letter. Uh, pastoring while Paul is near the end of his life in Rome, the second time he's in prison, and where he eventually dies. And in that letter, he writes, at that point, he writes a very personal letter to Timothy uh, that we know as Second Timothy. This is a dear, not more than just a dear friend of Paul's, this is a longtime disciple. We see leadership and development here. These two together now, in this first imprisonment in Rome, in this house that Paul has rented, sit around a table and say with each other, wow, we've heard what Epaphras told us. We heard what's going on in Colossae. They, they understood the simplicity and the beauty and the profoundness of the gospel, but now, now they're adding to it these these other Jewish people are coming in and, and, and wanting them to, to add things to their faith. They've they're got philosophers that are confounding things. What are we going to do? How are we going to write this? And I just imagine uh, Timothy saying to Paul, I, Paul was a pretty driven guy, very intellectual. And I could just see him kind of saying, well, you know, we've got to get this straight. We've got to correct that. We gotta, and I could, I could just hear Timothy going, yeah, I hear that. I mean, and, and boy, you've helped me a great deal in understanding the truth of these things. But how can we... Encourage them as well. What, what, what other things might we say? 
I get these people. They don't come from that far from where I came from. And so, so what things might we say there? And do you remember when you told me, oh yeah, yeah let's, let's tell them that. These leaders are architects of this letter as they bring it together under the responsibility of God and His authority to communicate with them what they need to hear. Wow. If you listened in on that conversation, what kind of impression would it make? What would you take away from that? If you could sit at the table, listen while they wrote, I wonder if you wouldn't respond with respect, you know, with deference, and say, wow, these guys have a difficult task on their hands. And, and look at them as they carefully, cautiously, but, but really with great integrity and importance, they, they want to make sure these people get it as they make this instruction and write it out. At the very end, Paul says, I, I write it with my own hand. Timothy may have actually been writing it for him, or there might have even been another scribe that was there, but at the very end, Paul puts his, his own hand to it and says, listen, this is from your leader. See, these are leaders. How would you respond to them if you listened in? How do you respond to the leaders you have in your life now? Do you defer to leadership in your life? Do you respect those that God, by His design, whether you like it or not, has placed as leaders in your life? Or are you... Uh, you know, I always like to say opinions are like noses. Everyone's got one, and we all pick at them. Everybody's got an opinion, right? And we don't like other people's opinions. Hopefully you're not picking at anybody else's nose. But we do pick at other people's opinions, don't we? Everybody's got an opinion, but not everybody wants to carry the responsibility of what that opinion might mean. Right? And I'm not just, I can imagine what you're thinking, oh boy, he's talking about somebody who criticizes the leadership of the church here. I'm really not, although it happens all the time. I mean, you know, anybody who's in leadership understands and knows the reality of having to make tough choices and people who don't like them. What about our country? What about our president? What kind of attitude do you have towards what's happening right now and the very difficult choices that those in leadership of our country have to do? It's not easy, is it? We need to defer and respect our leaders. Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority to keep watch. They keep watch over you as men who must give account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. For that would not be of advantage to you. To you, not just to them, to you. What kind of respect and deference do you show your leaders? Do you follow them? Maybe you are a leader. In fact, all of us are in some way or another. Do you live the kind of exemplary life that would cause people to respect you? You live a life that merits that kind of thing? Consider the people who are leaders in your life. And how do you respond to them? Consider the people who are following you in your life. And how are you influencing them? See, there's a lesson to be learned from a Paul and Timothy who, by God's grace, had the wisdom and the courage and the discernment and understanding 
to be able to write just what those people needed to hear. Some of it was encouraging, some of it was difficult. That's just one group. Those are the leaders. Over here at this table, we have a couple of teachers. You had the beautiful flowers put on that table there. I'm sure they didn't have those flowers, but they were sitting at a table because they were teachers. They were Tychicus and Onesimus, and we see this in verses uh, 7 through 9 of chapter 4. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's our dear brother, faithful minister, fellow servant to the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances that actually could be rendered also that he could know about your circumstances, understand the situation, and may encourage your heart. And he's coming with Onesimus, our faithful dear brother, who's one of you, and they will tell you everything about what's happening here. So, so there's, a, there's a minister going. These words describing Tychicus are the same words that were used of Epaphras. Now, he was the guy that they learned this all from. We've seen him before earlier in the letter. He's the guy that from Ephesus was traveling to their city and planted this church. So the same terms are used of him. He was this minister and teacher, and that's what he's going to do. He also was one of the guys that helped Paul take the offering from the Macedonian churches to Jerusalem. See, the church started in Jerusalem. We're going to learn this all this year, and how it spread around uh, eastern, uh, the eastern part of the Mediterranean and then into Europe. And, and there in Europe, an offering was taken up for the church in Jerusalem. It was in hard times then, subsequently. Well, that offering was delivered by Paul with a couple of other guys, and this was one of them. Tychicus went with him. He was a traveler. And then together, they are going to go together, uh, Tychicus and Onesimus. Now that name may be familiar, may not. We've looked at the book of Philemon here. And Onesimus was from this area. See, it says he's one of you. He was a slave. And he ran away from his owner, Philemon. And he ends up somehow in the presence of Paul. Paul leads him to Christ finds him a tremendously helpful person. His name actually means useful. And he sends him back, although we would love to keep him, to Philemon saying, forgive this guy and accept him as a brother. If you go to the end of Philemon, you'll find some of the very same names that are used to greet the church there when they write to Philemon. He may have been actually carrying this letter and they were going to see the people in Colossae and also wherever Philemon was, which I think was in his own home having a church there. And so this Onesimus is going back as an example of what is supposed to be done. You see, I think these are teachers by word and deed. Tychicus commended to bring change and to teach them. Onesimus sent to show how much you can change when your life is truly given over to God. He should have died for what he did as a runaway slave. Instead, he's supposed to be embraced and taken back in as a brother and appreciated, and learned from. So if you know that story, and you kind of get close to that table, you start listening to these guys, what are you going to walk away from as they say, wow, okay, now you know so-and-so, and I know so-and-so, and we're going to go there, and, and we really need to, I need to help these people understand what Paul has said to them, and how they can change. And, and Tychicus is saying to Onesimus, I, I'm so grateful, because I'm the guy that's going to be you know, kind of telling them some of the things, but you're the one that can show them. Because you were a thief and a, and a liar, and you left, and now you're coming back a changed person. You're somebody they can aspire to, aspire to become. And that's exactly what Paul ended up saying. You take him back in. This is a guy who is a brother in the Lord. Don't just take him back as a slave. Take him in as a brother. If you consider me, Paul says, a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. 
wow, this is going to be powerful. We're going to be able to walk in. What we've got to pray for, Tychicus says to Onesimus, is that these people will be attentive, that they'll listen, that they'll hear, that they will be inspired by what has happened in your life. Now, do you offer that kind of attentiveness to those who are teachers in your life? Maybe you're a teacher. Do you inspire people to aspire to be like you? Can you demonstrate a life that would inspire attentiveness, that would cause people to say, I want to be like that? Do you have people in your life that you look up to? Or are you so lost in yourself that you just don't see anywhere else you can go? We should all have people in our lives that have that kind of example in word and deed that we aspire to. Is change in your life that noticeable? That somebody else could come along and say, I'd like to be like them. That's what's happening at that table. And these guys are going to carry this job and they're going to, this, this, this letter, and they're going to go. And that's the job they're going to have before them as they walk in to meet with these people. Then there's another group. Aristarchus and Mark and, and Jesus, who was called Justice for obvious reasons. Uh, apparently that was a name that was used in, uh, by other people. So they call him Justice because they don't want to confuse him with the real Jesus, right? So that's in, uh, as if he wasn't a real Jesus. Uh, in verses 10 and 11, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes, welcome him. And then Jesus, who's called Justice, sends greetings as well. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a great comfort to me. Now, those guys are back here in the back of the room in the corner, kind of like our you know, worship guys um, goofing around in the back. Um, if they could, they would sit up here and just joke among themselves until I got done preaching, and then they get to play again. So these guys are in the back, and they're just kind of joking and laughing around. But unlike you know, teasing these guys. These guys are not making fun of Paul or anything. These are three guys that are kind of a band of brothers. These are three, as it says here, they're the only Jews among Paul, um, among Paul's ministry. Um, these guys have proved to be a comfort to Paul. Now, what was happening was the number of Jews that were coming to the Lord was decreasing. The number of Gentiles was increasing. And the criticism from the Jews was getting heavier and heavier. And Paul was always having to defend his apostleship and try and get people to not add things to the gospel. Keep it simple, just what Jesus said. And he's got these three guys that are just like him. They come from the same setting, the same background, the same Jewish uh, heritage. And they're just like he is. They're faithful. And I think they helped him lighten up. I think he was a, an intense guy. And, and they used to be, they were around him, traveling with him, and going, oh, we get it, and we got it, because we've been through it. So it's all good, we're going to help you. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Aristarchus is the other guy that goes with Paul to deliver that offering down to Jerusalem. So this guy's traveled with him. Now he calls him my fellow uh, um, prisoner. He's probably not actually a prisoner. The reason Paul called him that was because the guy went with him everywhere he was in prison. <laughs> He ends up traveling with him down there. Then Paul gets thrown in prison. This guy seemed to stick with him because he travels all the way from Caesarea through that long trip to Rome where they got shipwrecked on Malta. And then they finally get back there. And now he is here. And Aristarchus is with him. He, he's been with him so much. It's as if he's a prisoner himself. And he's stuck with Paul. And he's been with Paul all the way. And he's been a great comfort to him. 
The other remarkable person is Mark. Why we call him remarkable? Anyway, uh, Mark was this guy in their first missionary journey. Just seeing if you're awake, it's Labor Day weekend. It's their first missionary journey. They get to one of the first cities they go to in what we know as modern-day Turkey, and he hits the road. He quits. He bails on them. Becomes very controversial. He goes back. Paul says, well, you know, if you're going to put the hand in the plow, you look back, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. And so he's done with Mark. But Barnabas, cousin, wasn't done with him. In Acts chapter 15, we find a little disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. They're ready to go off on another journey. And, and uh, Barnabas wants his cousin to come along. And uh, to come along, and he goes, uh, Paul says, ah, oh, that ain't happening. Because this guy bailed. And so they have this little disagreement. Paul takes Mark, and he moves on. And Paul takes uh, Titus, and he moves on. And later, now we find him in Rome. And Mark is with him. And he says in that very personal letter that he writes to Timothy that I've told you about before, you know, when you come back to see me, get here as soon as you can, and bring Mark. Because he is really useful to me in the ministry. I need this guy. Look at what happened. He went from being a failure to this remarkable helper who brings comfort to Paul. Talk about a guy who knows what it is to fail, not only before God, but then to have to rebuild his respect and integrity with Paul. And now at the end is a guy that's just so helpful to Paul. Remarkable. Well, what can we learn from these guys? And then justice is only known by, uh, by the fact that his name is mentioned here. But there's camaraderie among these three. I think these guys are examples. And examples of those who pay the price. Those who know what it is to really stand up for what they believe. As Jews, they were criticized for it. And Mark, he even messed up big time and he paid a price for it and rebuilt his integrity so that he would be an example and a comfort and a minister to Paul. What should we learn from these guys? If you sat down and talked with them, besides the jokes and the laughing, I think you'd walk away with courage. You'd say, wow, look at these guys. They know what it is to prevail. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. What a change. What persistence. What prevailing to overcome adversity and even failure. So, Supply that a little bit. What kind of courage and conviction do you show? Do you prevail? Or, you know, when somebody says, how you doing? Oh, you know, pretty good under the circumstances. Feel sorry for me, please. I mean, is that how we live? Or do we prevail? Do we know what it is to get back up again and keep going? To make it. To actually do it. To trust God enough that He will help me get through this. And not only get through it, but get through it well. Or do we live under the circumstances? I would say under the circumstances, this guy made a pretty amazing turnaround. Are you like that? Are you a prevailing person? Are you the only one in your family that believes and everybody thinks you're a nut child? You know, some kind of religious goofball? Have you ever thought about taking that example and being a help to somebody else who's in the same situation to help them prevail? Or do you just live under that mantle of, oh no, man, nobody knows how bad I got it. Or how about I help somebody else who finds themselves in a similar situation so I can come alongside. That's what these guys were doing for Paul. Hey, we're in this together, buddy. 
I know, but I know everybody hates you, and everybody's writing terrible things about you, and they're all, you know, claiming that you've done all kinds of wrong things. We're in, we're in this together, man. We can do this. You a prevailer? What kind of comfort do you bring other people? How long have you traveled with them? What might you be able to do to lighten their load? Those are those three in the back. I think we can learn all kinds of stuff from them. Then there's a single person. He's mentioned in verses 12 and 13. This is Epaphras. We've heard about him before. Who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He sends his greetings. He's always wrestling for you in prayer. I can never talk to the guy. He's always praying. Look at him. He is over here on this. And Paul calls it hard work. That's what prayer is, right? We're never more Christian liars than when we say, oh yeah, I'll pray about that. Gone. Use the apps on your phone. Create a list. It's hard work. But he was he's wrestling with these guys. He must have had a list because he says, also, those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, this guy's got names. He's from that area. He knows these people. He takes the time. He makes the time. And he wrestles in prayer that they would understand. Stand firm in all the will of God. Mature and be fully assured. He's working hard for you. Wow. What an example. You learned everything you got from this guy. We know that from earlier in the letter. Now he's praying in the corner, wrestling for you. What should we learn from him? Well, that's obvious. <laughs> Concern and a discipline of prayer. How much do you pray? How much time do you give to that? See, the wonderful thing about prayer is that you don't only have to have some kind of little closet where you go. You can do it all along the way. You can use all those empty moments. Turn the radio off. And pray. There are two more that are in the scene here, and, and they're in verse 14. Our friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send their greetings. What do we get out of that one? Well, you've got to understand the bigger picture of the New Testament, but Dr. Luke is the one who writes the book that we're going to be studying for this next year. The book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel named after him, Luke. And this guy, we're going to learn a tremendous amount from. He's a truly meticulous, careful, faithfully, faithful, disciplined servant and scholar. And we're actually, through the book of Acts, going to understand how the, Old, the New Testament is actually put together and, and why some of these letters are where they are and how they fit because he was so careful about his recording. And he, he's talking with demons. Well, where are they? They're not sitting at the drums. They're over here. After our services, we uh, always give an opportunity for people to come forward and pray with uh, Stephen ministers and elders that are up here. And uh, you'll find people that are there in, sitting on that pew having a heart-to-heart. -heart. And it's obvious, and you know it too. You know, you see, come walking in, you see two people sitting there talking to each other. Well, you're not going to walk up and go, hey guys, what's up? You know, they're having a heart-to-heart. -heart, and they're kind of talking and they're praying together. And that's what's happening. Dr. Luke and Demas are having a heart-to-heart. -heart. And do you know why? Because Demas gets mentioned another time in the New Testament. A couple other times, but this is a sad one. 
in the last letter that Paul writes, the very personal one, second time he's in prison in Rome and he's writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, he has to say this. Do your best to come to me quickly because Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. And I think that Dr. Luke is sitting down with Demas because he's seen a couple things going on in his life and he's going, hey pal, what are you doing? Why, why were you saying the things that you said? What, what were you, I, I mean, I, I care about you, and I just I saw something going on there. Careful. Don't, don't do that. I mean, really. Do you understand what Christ did for you? Do you understand? The world is not worth that. He'll provide everything we need. Follow Him, and you don't need all that. Apparently, the conversation didn't work. We're going to learn so much from Luke over this next year. The only thing we're going to learn from Demas is a bad example. He finished poorly. And it's a crime. It's a shame. And if you were over there listening in on that, what would you walk away with? Danger? Careful? Beware? Be ready? Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Interesting, isn't it? There's an awful lot that can be pulled out of these verses when you start to see where these names showed up and the things that they did and all that we can learn from them. This is the next community. This is just a picture of what all of us are like who happen to find ourselves in the same room. Some of us are leaders who need to be respected. And we need to earn that respect. And we need to offer examples that people would aspire to. Some of us are teachers. And we need to be setting examples that people want to emulate and follow. Some of us need to be learning from those that are teachers in our lives and examples in our lives and follow them and emulate them. We're all brothers and sisters and we need to be listening to each other. Particularly when somebody who cares about you sits down and goes, hey, I don't know, there's this thing going on. I just sense it. I, I don't want you to... I want you to mess up. You are in a room. You're in this room, I guess. question is, where are you? Are you any one of these? You likely are. Or would you like to be like any of these? You probably should. Well, that sounds tough. I, I, I'm busy. I don't have time for that. I'm a, I'm a leader. I can't do that. I hate teachers, and I have to go back to that next week. How do we do that? Well, the beauty of it all is that there's another table. It's this one right here. And in a room, once upon a time, around a table, or a group of people, just like us. And the beauty of this is that everybody at this table is exactly the same. We're all 
seated around a table, just like the disciples were, in desperate need of a Savior. Do you need a Savior? You bet you do. If you just said to yourself, well, no, I needed one. No, no, you still need a Savior. The only difference between any of us in this room is whether or not we have humbly accepted His gift of love and forgiveness for our sins or not. Whether we have consciously interacted with Him and in transaction said, you're right, I'm wrong. I desperately need to be forgiven. That's the only difference between people in this room. Those who have acted in faith on Christ's work for them on the cross and those that have kind of seen it, recognized it, said, yeah, okay, whatever, it's good, but it's not for me. Yeah. This table is open to all people who have had that transaction, who have said, I agree, I'm wrong. I desperately need a Savior. And you, Jesus Christ, were the only one that could do that. You died on a cross in my place and offered me forgiveness for my sin. And I want to be like you. Now, the reason I say that is because as we consider trying to be like these different examples, it's impossible. Just like it was for them. Just like it was for Mark. Maybe he thought he could do it. So he joined this team and went, yeah, I can do it. And after a little while, he couldn't do it anymore. Well, what was the difference between the first Mark and the second Mark? I think the difference was one who cried out to a Savior and said, I desperately need you to help me, to fill me, to empower me, to give me what it is, whatever they have, that gives them the strength to do this. I want to be like Paul. I want to be like Barnabas. I want to be like your son, Jesus. So will you give me what's necessary? You see, that's where we're all at the same table. Now, the reason I can say that about Mark is because Mark wrote these very words in his gospel. He later was used to write the gospel of Mark. And he records the words of Jesus. Same guy in the room, in the back. Remember? The guy that's kind of chuckling and with a comfort to Paul. This is what he wrote that Jesus said. To all of them, Jesus said, you will all fall away. How deeply do you think those words rang in the ears of Mark. Both when he ran when Jesus was crucified and when he returned home from that journey. Later, he wrote of himself, I'm one of those guys. But then he continues to write. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you. Jesus says. I'll meet you in Galilee. What he means by that is, I'm going to meet you right where you are, and that's what he does right now. At this table, he, the ground is level. Because all of us have fallen away. All of us 
have rebelled against our holy God. And to this table, he says, now I'm going to meet you right there. And if you want to come and you want to trust what I did, my body sacrificed for you, if you will place your faith in the shed blood that I released on that cross to offer you forgiveness, in your mind, and you will forever be in community with me and with those that I have drawn together to be the body of Christ. I'd like us in that light to celebrate this. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about and you've resonated with it. And I, I hope I've just showed you another picture of the beauty of this table. So you come and you celebrate and you thank God for loving you even when you fell away and for drawing you into community with all those around you. And if you haven't done that, well then I encourage you to to respond in faith. And you'll see some guided prayers and there's one in here on belief that might help you articulate that. But all it takes is a simple act of faith that says, okay, I know I fell away and I need you. And I believe that what you did for me was sufficient. So forgive me. And bring me into community with these other people and help me to grow and give me the strength to be what you want me to be. So I'd like us to take a few minutes and reflect on that quietly. And then we will celebrate. But you pray directly to him. Speak to him openly and honestly. And tell him what the Lord has been, what he's been speaking to you about. And honestly respond in genuineness to him. Let's pray.